Welcome back to Unprecedential, AEI's podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. Our topic today, notwithstanding this podcast's title, is one of the Supreme Court's most important precedents. Last year marked the 200th anniversary of McCulloch versus Maryland, the Supreme Court's decision declaring that Congress has the constitutional power to charter a Bank of the United States. That decision and its famous line, we must never forget that it is a constitution we are expounding, had a formative effect on centuries of American constitutional law to follow. Some say for the better, others the worse. To mark the case's bicentennial, the American Enterprise Institute invited several esteemed constitutional scholars, and me, to write essays on this famous decision and on the broader legacy of its author, Chief Justice John Marshall. And this month, those essays are being published in a new book titled McCulloch vs. Maryland at 200, Debating John Marshall's Jurisprudence. The essays are also available on AEI's website. Joining us to discuss this book, the McCulloch case more broadly, are my AEI colleague Gary Schmidt, who planned and co-edited the book, and Nelson Lund, one of the constitutional scholars who wrote for this book. Nelson is a university professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, where I'm also proud to teach. Nelson, Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Gary, let's start with a little background. Before we dive into the case, why don't we talk a bit about the book and how you and our colleague Rebecca Burgess brought this project about? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, Rebecca and I put together a book, an edited volume with a couple of uh, friends of mine on the state of Congress as an institution. The title is Congress Broken. And then we followed that up with another volume on the presidency, the problem of the imperial presidency. We began to think, along with you, about whether and what might be done to talk about the next institution, the judiciary. And it was about that time that Rebecca sort of noticed that the 200th anniversary of McCulloch would be coming up. And so we thought, well, makes sense. Let's try to put together a good you know, set of papers and panel to talk about the case. And the reason why you want to talk about the case, of course, as everybody recognizes, is that it is such a profoundly important case in, in constitutional law and politics as well. And but one of the things that I've always noticed about some of these cases that are that people know about, you know, from their civics class or their 101 constitutional law courses, is that there's a kind of way in which people know these cases by rote. I mean, they they can give you the six points and, and then they move on. And I've always thought that these really important cases almost always have much deeper questions and issues that you can pull out of them that are really important for understanding both the constitutional system, but also the polity at large. And I think McCulloch v. Maryland lends itself to that extremely well. The issue of a bank, I think it's underappreciated, a national bank, and what it meant for how the founding generation thought about governance. I also think the sort of famous lines that Marshall puts forward are really quite interesting and, and not so easily understood. That long quote, you know, let the end be legitimate, let it be within the scope of the Constitution and all means which are appropriate, which are plainly adapted to the end, which are not prohibited, but consist with the letter and spirit of the Constitution or constitutional. That's a mouthful. And I think it points in any number of directions. And I think it lends itself to a lot of interesting discussions about how to read and interpret the Constitution. So that's sort of you know, the real genesis of why we, we went down this path to produce both the papers and the book. 
Just a couple of words about the case in general. I don't, how you put it a moment ago, the, the wrote six points and then move on. Maybe I'll deliver that. But just by way of a background on the case, the notion of Congress being given power to charter a bank or corporations at all, it wasn't foreign to the founders. They debated it. In fact, it was debated at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And the framers declined to put that provision in the Constitution. But the policy question arose very quickly in the Washington administration, as Nelson describes in his essay, and the others do as well. Washington commissioned his cabinet to write reports on the possible constitutionality of the bank. Madison in Congress was a critic of it. Jefferson in the cabinet was an even more vocal critic of it. And the attorney general of the United States was also a critic of it. Hamilton, by contrast, Secretary of the Treasury, was its leading backer and wrote, among the other famous reports he wrote as Secretary of Treasury, we'll say an eager defense of the notion of a bank of the United States. Washington ultimately goes along with this, although as Nelson points out, there is a, some seeming ambivalence leading up to his decision. Washington ultimately goes along with it and Congress enacts the first bank of the United States. Now, the constitutional lawsuit challenging the bank did not follow immediately upon the enactment of the original legislation. Today, we might sort of not realize that. Today, we're familiar with constitutional challenges being passed immediately upon enactment of legislation and the promulgation of regulations. Rather, the McCulloch case followed three decades on in 2019. Constitutional challenge to the bank, but also to the state of Maryland's attempt to tax the bank. And that is the two, those are the two issues in the case. One, does Congress have constitutional power to charter a bank in the United States? And second, even if it does, does Maryland or other states have the power to tax? Marshall affirms the constitutionality of Congress's enactment of the bank bill, doesn't declare that the constitution clearly or explicitly authorizes the chartering of a, of a bank corporation, but rather, and with the lines that Gary quoted earlier, concluded that in support of Congress's express powers enumerated in the Constitution, the additional power granted by what we call the Necessary and Proper Clause gave sufficient authorization for the bank. And that provision of the Constitution at the end of Article 1, Section 8, the final power that Congress has given is the power quote, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Marshall finds that that's broad enough to include authorization for the corporate bank of the United States. He adopts a pretty loose definition of necessity, not strict necessity, but much, much more deferential to Congress. In fact, in his analysis, Marshall sort of takes for granted the necessity of the bank based on the intervening 30 years of experience, but then goes on to say on questions of the degree of necessity, that is better judged by Congress than by the court. Then turning to the state of Maryland, the court declares broadly that the states cannot tax the operations of the Bank of the United States. Now, they carve out towards the end a state's power to tax the property on which the bank sits, as Nelson points out in his essay. But on the question of taxing the operations of the bank, whatever that might mean, the court declares broadly that the states can't do it. As we often say today, if there's the power to tax, it's the power to destroy. The court says precisely because a state's taxation power could significantly impair or nearly destroy the operations of the Bank of the United States, 
They won't allow it at all. And once again, the court says, we're not going to delve into questions of degree of necessity. We're going to make a broad categorical rule deciding the issue. Now, all this was undertaken under the shadow of not just debates about the bank, but about national power in general, debates about internal improvements, obviously the question of slavery, and so on. So it was an extremely consequential case, so consequential that it engendered immense criticism and then spurred Chief Justice Marshall to write a series of newspaper essays anonymously defending his own decision. But again, it sparked not just two centuries of debate, but two centuries of further legislation, opening the doors to a very, very broad conception of federal power, practically unlimited conception. What do you think, Gary? Nelson, is that a fair way of describing the case? Yeah, I think you've done a pretty good job. I mean, I think the reason why we're, it's the three of us, is I wrote the introduction to the the book where I tried to put the case and Marshall himself in a broader context. But what's most interesting to me, and again, the reason why Rebecca and I thought this would be an interesting book to have uh, various essays on, was the sort of contrasting views about the case that you and, and Nelson have. There are a number of essays, and we'll get back to, the, to who else is in the book, but the very first essay's title that Nelson wrote is called The Destructive Legacy of McCulloch v. Maryland. And the book ends with your chapter, Adam, where it's McCulloch v. Maryland and John Marshall's Judicial Statesmanship. So I think we could have a very good discussion just sort of talking about the, these two different takes on Marshall's opinion. Perhaps, Adam, you should begin by talking about your essay and how you arrived at the idea that Marshall was, in fact, engaging in a kind of statesmanship here. Sure, I'd be glad to. I, I hope at some point we also get a chance, maybe at the end, to just briefly summarize the other, the other essays and contributors, just because it's, it's a really astonishing collection of, of scholars. Again, I'm sort of embarrassed to be among this group because there are some really great minds in there, in addition to my piece. When we first started talking about this, this project, you raised the question of statesmanship, Gary. I actually blame you for this. And I said, <laughs> what does this tell us about statesmanship? Notice that I'm making you write it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as a, a lawyer, a recovering lawyer, I don't know a whole lot about statesmanship, but I thought it was an interesting question. I did know that Tocqueville, in his famous study, Democracy in America, referred to judges as statesmen. He said that among, the, among judges, there needs to be statesmen among them. He doesn't say what he means. After Tocqueville, there's no shortage of constitutional commenters who talk about judicial statesmanship, especially in the early 20th century. What they usually mean by that was, what they usually meant by statesmen was judges who didn't feel totally hemmed in by the Constitution and who showed statesmanship by pushing beyond the bounds of the Constitution. As an originalist, although maybe a more faint-hearted originalist than Nelson and a lot of my other friends, I was, but still an originalist, I was never satisfied with that idea of judicial statesmanship. To me, the, the best judge is always the one who stays within the bounds of the Constitution. And I don't see much statesmanship in going beyond that. And in fact, our, our friend Matthew Frank, now at Princeton, wrote a, a great, great paper many years ago criticizing this idea of judicial statesmanship. And, and I agreed with it totally. But I didn't want to take for granted those notions of statesmanship. And, and for me, thinking about statesmanship, I always go back to a book written decades ago by Nelson's, one of Nelson's teachers, actually, Harvey Mansfield, Professor Harvey Mansfield at Harvard, his study of Burke, statesmanship, and party government. And his account early on of 
Burke's style of statesmanship struck me in the context of Marshall and McCullough versus Maryland. The quote specifically, this is how Mansfield describes Burke's statesmanship. He said, it is not that a statesman is unprincipled or above principle. It is rather that his principle loses its refinement in the translation to public speech and thence the party program. In such translation, a principle must be defensible as well as practicable and defensible not to a public ready to be impressed by great statesmen, but to a party eager to correct a seeming unconformity and to a public taught to reward partisanship. True in our time as in Burke's. That notion of statesmanship actually struck me as very much akin to what I see Marshall doing in this case. And in discussing the case, I lean heavily on one of the more recent studies, the McCullough decision. First, it was an an article by Professor David Schwartz called Misreading McCullough versus Maryland, which he then followed up in his own book, Marking the Bicentennial, titled The Spirit of the Constitution, A Study of John Marshall's Legacy. And as Schwartz points out in the piece, one of the most interesting things about McCullough versus Maryland is the things that Marshall doesn't say. Because as mentioned earlier, so much of this case was seen and really argued by advocates of the bank, advocates for the bank, in terms of broad categorical national power, right? First and foremost, internal improvements, but also, of course, again, with the, against the backdrop of the, of the slavery debates. And much of the defense of the bank was made by its advocates with an eye to protecting those initiatives too, what came to be the American system. This idea of broad federal power, broad national power within the operation of states. And so they argued the case with an eye to that. And as Schwartz points out, and, and I think is right, then what makes Marshall's argument opinion for the court so interesting is he leaves those all to the side. When he decides the case, yes, he has a broad decision in favor of this bank power. And yes, he does have broad language regarding the necessary and proper principle. And yes, a broad decision about the limits that this federal power then places upon the states. But he stays away from any kind of express endorsement of those broader national or nationalist programs that his fellow federalists or, or sort of the aftermath of the federalist power had been advocating. And so Marshall defends the bank, I think rightly so, and I, I think that's surely a place where Nelson and I disagree, defends its necessity less in terms of abstractions and more in terms of the actual experience of history. And this, I think, often gets overlooked. One of the reasons why his discussion, when he gets to sort of the legal conclusions about necessary and proper, one of the reasons why the application of those broad platitudes to the facts at hand are so brief is that that defense actually occurs earlier in his opinion when he talks about, first of all, the, the sort of settlement of the bank issue in the political process in the intervening three decades, a point that even Madison, originally a critic of the bank, conceded by the time he was president, a point that Will Bode of the University of Chicago returned to recently in his paper on liquidation, which we, we discussed on this podcast with Will a few weeks ago. But also some interesting passages where Marshall reflects upon recent history, the recent history of the United States both in its growth as a continental nation and also in the challenges he alludes to sort of obliquely, the challenges that the country faced in this period after the first bank of the United States, its legislation expired, and before the second bank legislation was passed. Marshall says early in his opinion, the original act for the bank was permitted to expire, but a short experience of the embarrassments to which the refusal to revive it exposed the government 
convince those who are most prejudiced against the measure of its necessity and induce the passage of the present law. Now, as I said just a moment ago, while I'm originalist, I am a fairly faint-hearted originalist relative to, to Nelson, especially on questions of federal national power. I think one of the reasons why I'm out of step with, with some friends' assessment of McCullough versus Maryland is I am a little out of step with, with them on questions of necessary and proper clause in general. I think that Justice Scalia got it right in the Raich case, the marijuana case. I've always been a little more faint-hearted on questions of federalism, faint-hearted from a, a national perspective. And also, as listeners to this podcast know, sympathetic to a more deferential standard of judicial review, especially when reviewing federal legislation. Now, in, in Nelson's, Nelson's own essay, there's a footnote where he says, referring back to me and, and again to Professor Schwartz's treatment of McCullough, Nelson says, canny tactics are not synonymous with prudence, and they cannot be justified without reference to the worth of their aims and effects. I agree with that. I honestly don't think that's what I did, although I'm always hesitate to, to disagree with Nelson. I don't think that's what I did. It might be because, again, sort of my background view of federal power is, is, is fairly broad, that I, I thought that Marshall's project was appropriate on its own merits. I think it is a faithful interpretation of the Constitution. But his footnote, when I read it, it did give me pause because on the one hand, yes, statesmanship requires prudence. I think the best statesmanship is, in, is found in not saying too much rather than you know, saying too much. But I don't want to give the impression that I'm for dishonesty. And I think that to the extent one finds what Marshall is doing here to be an exercise in dishonesty, then it certainly wouldn't qualify as, as statesmanship. But I've probably filibustered too long now. Gary, why don't I, I hand it back over to you? Thanks, Adam. Well, one of the nice things about the event that we had in the last year was we had the panel and we had some papers, and Nelson was kind enough to, to join us in the audience. And very shortly thereafter, published a short piece about the case, which Rebecca and I read, and, and we thought, if the piece was expanded, that it would be a very useful and thoughtful complement to some of the other papers that had been commissioned and were in draft. And so Nelson did so, and the essay is powerful enough that it leads the, the volume as the first real substantive chapter. And I, I suspect that this issue of restraint as you can tell from the title, The Destructive Legacy of McCulloch v. Marilyn Nelson thinks that the restraint, if there was much restraint, it certainly didn't have the effect that it was intended to do so. But I'll let Nelson speak for himself about Marshall's opinion and his opinion of it. Nelson, over to you. Okay. I want to try to meet Adam on his own ground, unless it becomes useful, kind of refrain from getting into too many of the details about the arguments in McCulloch. Let me just say first that I don't think this is a dispute, but the dispute between Adam and I, I don't think it's a dispute about originalism or about the kind of originalism. Marshall claims to be an originalist. He claims to be giving the, the meaning of the Constitution as it was originally intended to the extent that that's possible. He says quite clearly that there is no longer any dispute about the fact that this is a limited government of enumerated powers. And I don't think he disagrees with me about that. And I don't disagree with him about the fact that there are also implied powers, implied powers that would have existed even without the necessary and proper clause, but certainly do exist given the necessary and 
and proper clause. The question is the extent of the breadth of those powers and how to go about determining what the breadth of that those applied powers are. Now, I also don't disagree, I don't think about Adam fundamentally about the importance of judicial statesmanship. Something like statesmanship, I think, is required of judges. It's not a mechanical operation in judging. It has to take into account questions of prudence, prudence and how to interpret the Constitution. It's not like algebra. You can't do it that way. I don't think we disagree about that. We do disagree, I think, very much, however, about the nature of the statesmanship that Marshall was employing in this case. I'm sure that he intended this as, a, as an exercise in statesmanship. I think it is an exercise in gross irresponsibility. He abdicates from what I think is a judicial duty to explain exactly what enumerated powers were being exercised in the creation of the bank and to explain why they were necessary and proper. He just blows through that and says, basically, in some very confusing and equivocal passages, it's really up to Congress, and I'm not even going to give an analysis. He could have given an analysis. It would have been quite easy to do, to present a very powerful analysis why the establishment of the bank was a necessary and proper exercise of powers granted in the Constitution. Hamilton had laid out the arguments in great detail in his opinion that he gave to President Washington. Marshall knew that opinion very, very well, very familiar with it. He deliberately decided not to do that. He did not do what I think was legally required of him in assessing the constitutionality of the bank. Instead, he goes into a lot of political theory and high-blown rhetoric and confusing, equivocal, and ambiguous statements that give the impression that Congress's powers are almost unlimited, but never quite says that and kind of promises someday we'll tell you what the limits are. It's a very confusing opinion. Not surprisingly, I think, it had no impact on, on the court for a very long time. For decades, it was hardly cited. At least the part on the bank was hard, the Constitution on the bank was hardly cited. And when it did get cited, it was often cited on both sides of the question. That happened right after the Civil War. It happened again later in the 19th century. So as a, le as a specimen of legal reasoning, the case is really just appalling. It's an exercise in kind of rhetorical flourishes and so on. It's wonderful. I don't think that is either legally proper, and I don't think it was statesmanlike. Now, quite apart from the question of, of whether he could have done something along the lines of what Hamilton did in his opinion on the bank, there was another alternative, which Marshall was quite well aware of, which is the alternative adopted by President Madison in 1815. Madison had believed, plausibly enough, that the bank was unconstitutional when, it was, when the first bank was enacted. When the second bank was under consideration, President Madison vetoed a bill on policy grounds, but he said he no longer was going to consider it unconstitutional because this was a debatable question and it had, in effect, been settled by a national consensus over the years since the controversies over the first bank. And Marshall comes close to saying, well, we could just rest the case on that. I think he could have done that. He could debate about whether that was the appropriate thing. President Jackson later thought it was quite inappropriate, that it really hadn't been settled, but that would have been a respectable position. It was a position Madison took and a very statesmanlike veto message 
1815. But rather than rather than simply rest on that argument, Marshall decides to go off and talk about a question that he thinks he himself says is hypothetical. Well, if this were the first time we were considering this, we would come out the same way. Well, that's just hypothetical, completely unnecessary. And that's not an example of refusing to say too much. That's an example of saying way too much. It was completely unnecessary, inappropriate, and in my view, irresponsible. Now that, all those problems with the bank part of the decision, pale in comparison with the irresponsibility of the opinion on the constitutionality of Maryland's tax. You can't tell for sure why the tax is being declared unconstitutional. The opinion, again, is equivocal, ambiguous, and vague. It can be read to say, well, the tax is unconstitutional because it violates the Constitution itself. That comes close to absurdity because it would mean that Congress doesn't have the power to allow the states to tax the bank, which I think Congress certainly did have that power. So the other more plausible reading is that the Maryland tax violates the statute that established the bank. Now, Congress certainly did, given that it had the power to establish the bank, it certainly had the power to forbid the states to tax the bank. But did it do that? Marshall seems to assume that it did. He never talks about the statute, though. And if you go and look at the statute, there is not one word in the statute indicating that the states are forbidden to tax the bank. So Marshall, in effect, seems to be using, using an argument that, well, if he seems to be assuming that if Congress had been asked, can the states tax the bank, they would have said no. But of course, Congress wasn't asked. It didn't say no. And Marshall is usurping Congress's power to decide whether the states can tax the bank or not. And there's useful historical information indicating that Congress almost certainly would not have forbidden Maryland to impose this tax on the bank. We can go into the details of, if anybody's interested. But the result is that the opinion as a whole is a really kind of distressing combination of abdication and usurpation. Marshall, in the first part of the opinion, abdicates the duty to, to provide a, a responsible legal argument for a conclusion that was certainly defensible and could have been given a defensible legal argument. In the second part of the opinion, he's usurping Congress's power. So there is, I think, nothing good to be said about this opinion on the merits, or almost nothing. That is only the beginnings of the problems with the opinion, because it turned out that the opinion is, uh, has operated as a kind of time bomb in our history. And in the 20th century, it began to be used and been used very aggressively by the Supreme Court to justify a, a fundamental restructuring of the government in a way that was not contemplated, authorized, or permitted by the Constitution itself. I'll say a couple of more good things about the opinion, I suppose. Adam, are you at 20 paces or not? <laughs> <laughs> no. Listen, in terms of what happened in the, in the two centuries since, an invocation of the opinion as sort of carte blanche to, to justify any expansion of federal power. I, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, I, I agree it happened. Don't agree that it's right. I don't blame Marshall for that. In fact, when Nelson pointed out earlier that when the case was first decided, and it was, it was if, I, if I heard you correctly, it wasn't cited that much at all in the years that immediately followed, I take that as, as a sort of a, a good thing, not a bad or, or, or a bad thing, or rather as, as evidence of the sort of statesmanship that I'm, I'm pointing to here, right? The fact that Marshall decided the case, and I'll get to the, the, the merits of it in just a second, 
But the fact that he decided this case of such national import that was surrounded by all these broader and imminent debates over federal power, but he decided it in such a way as to not immediately lend ammunition to the partisans on the other sides of these other issues. I actually take that to be a, a good thing. Again, starting with the premise that I think the, he got it right on the merits. And the fact that, you know, a century later or whenever the citation started, that, that subsequent judges and scholars and others abused the case, misused the case, stretched the case. I don't blame Marshall for that. I blame the people who didn't put up a better fight in their own time. Let me just say on, on the merits of the opinion real quick. I do just fundamentally disagree with, with Nelson's assessment of the lack of the merits. I think Marshall actually did grapple with the legal issue. I think his interpretation of necessary and proper is right. And I think it's right in an, from an originalist perspective or an originalist method in terms of the best way to understand necessary and proper, not the strict interpretation of necessity, but a more deferential one. But on this question of connecting the dots between Marshall's platitudes and the actual necessity of this legislation, again, I think the points are all right there in the opinion, albeit often earlier in the opinion. When he talks about early on in the opinion, he says the power being given, namely the power to what he calls the great powers to, to raise armies and, and so on. The power being given, it is in the interest of the nation to facilitate its execution. And he goes on to say, throughout this vast republic from the St. Croix to the Gulf of Mexico, the Atlantic to the Pacific, revenues to be collected and expended, armies to be marched and supported, the exigencies of the nation may require that treasures moved from here to there, and, and, and so on. From that, I've always taken to be the proof of the necessity. Those experience of the federal government in building out as continental power and the need to transport its financial resources in service of not just sort of a vague market power, but specifically in service of supporting armies and other governmental operations throughout the country. I always took that to be the best defense of necessity. And when Marshall says the question has been settled by experience, where he says it scarcely be considered an open question, I take him to be referring not just to the sort of abstract legal question, right? The, the question in 1791 and onward about whether there's this constitutional power. Now we have three decades of, of hard and fast evidence by 1819, not 2019, as I think I said earlier, but 1819, three decades of experience, both with the bank and without the bank. And it's that experience that Marshall points to, but it's also that experience that then I think, again, what I like about the opinion is it cabins the analysis right? He's presented necessity, not in abstract terms, but in completely concrete terms, which I think supports the point, but limits the, the breadth of the opinion. And later generations, when they use the case, misuse the case, it's often because they abstract away just the concrete actual experience of government between 1791 and 1819 that I think gave real force to the opinion. Let me just say one last thing. Again, I know I've been going on too long, but this point about Congress enacted the bank, but they didn't include a provision preempting the taxing power. I'll say, you know, Nelson's essay makes very good points on this, especially when he points out that Marshall doesn't draw real lines between why taxes on property are okay, but taxes on the bank, direct bank operations, whatever Marshall means by that, are not okay. I agree. That's, that's, a, that's a challenging part of the opinion. And, and I, I wish there was more specificity there too. But on this question about the absence of a preemption clause, I think Marshall's construction of the statute is eminently reasonable. Congress, having passed the bank, would not want to have 
in the statute, sort of the, the, the means, leaving open the means of the program's own destruction. I mean, if Congress had weighed in and explicitly left open the door to state taxation, then of course, Marshall should, should leave it go. But in the absence of any express statement for or against preemption, I think the natural interpretation of it is preemptive. Now, as Nelson points out in his essay, of course, this opens the door to the, the broadest theory of preemption. You use the right term, and I can't think of it right now. I think of it as, as not field preemption, but just the, the broadest of, of conflict preemption, frustration of federal purposes preemption. But I think that's a defensible view of, of preemption. Well, let me just kind of take Adam's points roughly in the order that, that he gave them. As far as don't blame Marshall, I certainly don't think he's primarily to blame. I think there's plenty of ambiguity in the opinion that future courts should, could have, and should have used to read the opinion more narrowly than they did and have in the 20th century. That, that I agree with. I do blame Marshall for giving them the opportunity, and there's plenty of opportunity in the opinion to construe it in the broad way that it has been construed in the, in the 20th century. I don't think it's the best way to interpret the opinion, but it's, it's certainly the most obvious way to interpret the opinion. It's just the way it has been interpreted in the 20th century. As to roiling the waters or giving ammunition to the extreme nationalists at the time the opinion was decided, I think that's just wrong. It gave real concern to people, including James Madison, who said, I don't mind the holding, but the opinion is, is, is opens the door to all kinds of terrible things. It's, it does not exhibit the kind of judicial restraint that we treasure in the Anglo-American common law tradition, which is deciding one case at a time, not making broad abstract statements that can then be misinterpreted or have, can lead to bad consequences. It's just a real departure from the whole tradition of, of judicial restraint in our civilization. I agree with Madison about that. I think the holding in the case is easy to defend. By the holding, I mean the result in the case. And I think the abstract statements in the opinion, including the holding that was read earlier, that's defensible as an abstract matter. The problem is it tells you so little about how to decide specific cases. And this case, it's not clear exactly why this case was decided as it was. I just disagree with, with Adam, who suggests that the, the implied powers analysis was, was, was based, was sufficient, and in several ways in which it's defective. And I'm, I'm just going to give an example. You would never know from reading Marshall's opinion that this was a private bank, primarily, owned 80% by private investors who were going to run the bank for profit, for their profit. The United States had only a 20% interest and had some regulatory power. Marshall never, never explains why that was justifiable rather than being a pretext for the enrichment of private people. Now, I think Hamilton, in his opinion, explained why that was the best way to structure the bank, and, and it was in the public interest. But Marshall doesn't even take that into consideration, and it's particularly striking, given that in his 1815 veto message, Madison vetoed that particular bill because it didn't provide enough protection from the private interest against the public interest. And Marshall just doesn't even inquire into this, although his own statement of the holding would seem to demand it, since it says that the court would 
strike down statutes that were a pretext for doing things that Congress didn't have the power to do. Similarly, with the branches, the branches established for the for the National Bank, Marshall just says, well, that seems like a good idea, basically. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But there's no explanation of why they were necessary and proper, as opposed to just being devices to enrich the private shareholders. Maybe there were good answers to that. Probably there were good answers. I'm sure Alexander Hamilton could have given good answers, but they're not in the opinion. And therefore, I think the opinion is is, is defective. If I could jump in here. Go ahead. I mean, more of the useful conversation. I just want to note that some of the other chapters take up some of the points that both Adam and, and Nelson have put forward. So again, I think the book's texture and, and substance, you know, sort of, again, th- there's different issues here and they do get addressed in different ways by some of the different essays. So I just want to recommend the rest of the book as well. But if I can play political scientist here, I wonder if it's possible to think of Marshall's opinion as being in an attempt. He's got two sort of audiences here. The first one is the resurrection of this anti-federal states' rights push that's coming primarily because of slavery, where the, the Maryland lawyers are really demanding a return to a kind of a compact vision of the union. Marshall's broad language here, I, I think, and also in his essay, his private essays, where he defends the opinion, really it's all designed, not all designed, but it's principally designed to sort of remind folks of what, how the union was created, why it was created, and, and what its status is. But on the other hand, you know, he's also got this issue, which is Madison and the Republicans in government, like Madison and Gallatin, have sort of come around to largely federalist policies. So they half-heartedly initially, but then accept issues like the Congress being able to create a national bank. So I wonder if some of the problems in Marshall's opinion is just that he's got these two different audiences. On the one hand, he really wants to lay down a marker against the compact people. But at the same time, he doesn't want to offend Madison by stretching too much what the necessary and proper cause might mean. For example, he, you know, Hamilton ties the bank most directly to creating a national currency. And for Madison and the others and Gallatin and the others, that's a real you know, hard issue for them to swallow. And of course, as Adam points out, the, there's the issue of infrastructure and also slavery. There's votes on slavery that have just happened in the House, passed in the House, that was still you know, the issue of whether Congress could prohibit slavery in, in new states. I think Marshall might be read as trying to you know, walk tippy-toe through these two different kinds of landmines. And I may, whether he was successful or not is a different matter, but I think that might explain the character of, of the writing and the way the, the opinion is structured. But okay, now I'm ready to be shot at from 20 feet by both Adam and Nelson. Well, when you decide to become a statesman, it might be a good idea to know what you're doing. And maybe you should do that in a political realm. Let's remember the constitutionality of the bank was not a burning political issue in 1819. It was in the Washington administration. It was not. It just was not controversial. President Madison had already signed the second bank into law. And so there was no necessity at all, really very little excuse 
in this case for doing anything than deciding it on the legal merits and upholding it would probably not have been particularly controversial. He generated all this controversy with his very broad opinion. The attacks on the opinion were on the opinion, not on the upholding of the constitutionality of the bank. So this is partly why I think it was just irresponsible. Now, Gary, you may be right that he was trying to do some kind of fancy political footwork of satisfying various kinds of audiences. But if he wanted to do that, he could have written an essay on the nature of the union and published it. He didn't have any problem with publishing his views outside the court on all kinds of things, including the McCullough opinion itself. If he wants to be a statesman, go out and be a statesman where it belongs, not by purporting to be a judge, not by purporting to apply the law. Yeah, I think that was that was just irresponsible on his part. This case did not raise issues about a national currency. It did not raise issues about slavery, did not raise issues about internal improvements. Those were all certainly important political issues. But this case could have and should have been decided without regard to any of those issues. It just didn't impact them. All it had to do, all he had to do was give a narrow upholding of the constitutionality of the bank. Let me go back before I stop. One quick thing about what's called obstacle preemption. That's the term Adam was trying to, to think of. That's the technical term in modern law for obstacle. It's called obstacle preemption. When the court thinks, well, this is an obstacle to accomplishing Congress's unstated purposes, then we'll just assume that if they were asked, they would write a law forbidding it. It's a corrupting and corrupted judicial doctrine that really the first instance of it that I know of in American law is in McCulloch itself. And now it's just used very, very responsibly by the court. I think it's just, I don't agree with Adam that, that it was obvious that the statute was meant to forbid taxes by the states. There's historical evidence that it wasn't. And part of that historical evidence involves the fact that this was not a particularly onerous tax. If Congress had been asked, would you allow this kind of tax? They might well have said, sure. In fact, that is what the Secretary of Treasury thought. He thought that if we tried to get a ban on, on this tax through the, through the Congress, it would fail. And he was the one who was interested in having it succeed. So I think as an application of preemption doctrine or preemption thinking, I think it's just indefensible in this case, but it, it's certainly not obviously correct. I mean, when we talk about the statesmanship and, and whether Marshall did it right, did it wrong. Why didn't he say the things that Hamilton said? Why wouldn't he say these other things? Again, for me, it comes back to the, the task of the judicial statesman, right? The, the, the kind of statesmanship that Marshall was called upon to exercise was, was that of the judge, not the policymaker. Hamilton was able to make much broader arguments because he was Secretary of Treasury, and his arguments were infused with a mix of both law and policy. I mean, they always are, but from the Treasury Secretary, you have more latitude to do that. Marshall, again, I, I think he connected the dots very well, both his theory of necessity and also alluding to the, the, the experience of government in the intervening three decades. I think that was enough. And I don't think he needed to say more. To Nelson's points, yes, Congress could have drawn clearer lines. It could have made much more specific provisions in one direction or other in the law. That's thing Congress always does. It draws lines and it can draw arbitrary ones. Marshall's task, the court's task, it's a, and Nelson, I don't think, would disagree with me on this, is, is always that it, it has to have some principles for its decisions. It can't just sort of split the, split the, the baby. And I don't think that's what Marshall did here. I think he, he, he made principled decisions and defensible ones. 
his broad conception of necessity, his deferential approach on the fact of necessity in this case, and then the broad view of preemption with respect to what the state did. Those are all principled lines, and they're a little abstract because judges have to be abstract. On the factual question, he deferred to basically lived experience. When Nelson was talking about obstacle preemption and all the evils it caused, in a way, I, I used to practice obstacle preemption law. I mean, the first you know six or seven years of my legal career, when I was an energy infrastructure lawyer, we were in the business of going into federal court and calling for broad preemption of state laws. And my, and my colleagues who you knew I was a conservative used to tease me about this. They used to say, this must be very hard for you being a states' rights guy. And I said then, and I say now, no, not hard at all, because I've always thought that the, the broad preemptive view of conservative constitutionalism, the Michael Grieva view, so to speak, to name another former, former AEI fellow and our, our colleague at Mason, I've always thought that's the, be- the better view of this to begin with, that, that these, are, these are inferences from the Constitution in terms of broad preemption, broad preemptive effects of federal legislation. But I also think it's, it's correct. McCullough was, I suppose, the first example. They followed up very quickly with Gibbons. And I think that's the right way to see the supreme power of, of federal law. But again, I, I, I will concede very freely that that is a minority position among my originalist friends. It's me, Michael Grieva, and a small handful of others who could fit in a phone booth. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about my essay and Nelson's essay. Obviously, these are just two particular contributions to a much bigger project on the McCulloch case. So before we go, Gary, could you just tell us a little bit about the other essays in this book? There's some really significant constitutional thinkers here, all looking at different aspects of the McCulloch case and, and the issues that gave rise to the case. So what's in the book? Yeah, no, thanks, Adam. I think it's actually a really substantive contribution to the debate about, the, about Marshall's opinion in the case. There's seven chapters in all, including yours and, and Nelson's. And at the end of the volume, we include the opinion by Marshall himself. Let me just kind of run through some of the essays, or all the essays, actually. The first one, of course, is Nelson's, whose title is The Destructive Legacy of McCulloch v. Maryland. And as we've discussed, Nelson's pretty critical of the opinion. The second chapter is by Michael Zuckert, who's a professor emeritus at Notre Dame. And the title of that chapter is The Sound of the Third Hand Clapping. It's James Madison's reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause, which is an effort to draw a distinction between Madison's reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause and that offered by Hamilton on the one hand, which in Zucker's reading is quite broad, and also Jefferson's reading of the same clause that's obviously very narrow. So Zucker tries to find a middle way to describe Madison's own views about these matters. The next chapter is written by Chris Wolf from the University of Dallas, professor of politics, and it's a straightforward account of Marshall's opinion in the case. And I think the crucial thing that Chris tries to bring out in his essay is just how distinctive Marshall's way of interpreting the Constitution is from modern jurisprudence. He's a fan of how Marshall actually argued the case and also makes the point that from his reading of, of the opinion, just how much judicial restraint actually Marshall is engaged in in his reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause. The next chapter is by longtime friend of mine, Robert Webking, professor at the University of Texas, El Paso, has written several fine books, particularly one on American founding and the idea of liberty. So Webking takes up 
Marshall's defense of McCulloch in Maryland as the anonymous author of the essays, A Friend of the Constitution. And Bob's, I think there's a couple key contributions, one of which is just to put in place just how much Marshall's views about the, the case and the opinion were directed to try to beat back a revisionist view of, of the union. Uh, in other words, there was a larger regime principles at stake that Marshall brings out much more forthrightly in, in these essays than he did in the opinion. Bob also, I think, makes a unique contribution in that he suggests that in the essays themselves, Marshall actually doesn't rely on necessary and proper clause to defend the bank. That in fact, there's a distinction between the powers derived from necessary and proper and also the powers that can be thought to be means connected to the actual enumeration. So it's an interesting example. And people have noted that Marshall's use of necessary and proper wasn't particularly you know, tight to the final decision. And I think Bob's essay explores that quite well. Then the next chapter is written by Abram Shulsky, who's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, whose title of the, uh, the chapter is How an Economist Might View McCulloch v. Maryland. Abe's contribution here is to talk about the fiscal and monetary implications of creating a bank, how unique the corporation was. It was actually a bank that was going to be run by private interests, not government interests. So it raises even back then issues of delegation of, of legislative power. And also just the underlying notions of what Hamilton had in mind for a bank and creating particularly a national currency, with the model being the Bank of England which allowed larger commercial activities, which I think Marshall was underpinning the argument about how the United States was to become a large commercial republic. So it brings broader context to the Marshall's opinion in, in the bank itself. And then finally, there's your essay, McCulloch v. Maryland and John Marshall's Judicial Statesmanship, which we've just been discussing. And then finally, there's an introductory chapter by me where I try to sort of put some context, political context, surrounding the case, both about Marshall's own biography as a politician, as a diplomat, as a statesman, as Secretary of State, as a military officer and the like, but also just some of the issues that you discussed about infrastructure and slavery that are surrounding the decision when it comes down. So I think the, the book as a whole frames the opinion in a quite substantive way and, and in different ways. And there's a good deal of disagreement between the chapters. So I think it serves the purpose of, again, keeping the debate alive and the debate about underlying principles up front. Gary, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that this book really follows on directly from a couple other books that you had done recently. In fact, I, was, I had the honor of contributing to one of those books too, the one on the Imperial Presidency. But in fact, AEI has a, has a, has a much deeper legacy of books on constitutionalism, these edited volumes, bringing together a wide variety of constitutional thinkers, and, and of course, not just lawyers, and definitely not just lawyers, but to think about these issues. In the last couple of decades, we saw books by Michael Grieva, another friend of ours, and Richard Epstein on federalism and, and, and similar themes. We saw a few years before that, edited volumes on your teacher, Herb Storing, edited by Joe Bassett, a volume on Martin Diamond, by Bill Shambra. But then before all of that, there was this series of, of books by Robert Goldwyn, just a fascinating series of books on constitutionalism. I don't know how many there were in total. I've tried to track down as many of them as I can, but I've, they're hard to find these days. 
Gary, how should we think about AEI's legacy on this? I mean, this is a much bigger podcast. I'm going to have to have you back just to talk about these books. But how do you think about AEI's legacy in books like these? What's the role of the value of books like these in our own time? Yeah, it's remarkable, actually. There was this kind of golden era from basically 1980 to the late 1990s. I think it was a total of something like that, particularly Robert Goldwyn, who was an AEI scholar, but he was not only a scholar, but he was a remarkable convener of folks to bring together different voices about to talk about constitutional issues and regime principles. I think at one point I counted up something like 27 of these volumes that either Goldwyn wrote, but mostly they were edited volumes on all kinds of regime issues, separation of powers, the economy, foreign policy, federalism. They just go on and on how democratic was the Constitution and the like. And I think some of that you know, was driven by the fact that, that after the bicentennial in 1976 and the bicentennial of the Constitution in 1987, there was a great deal of interest in, to be thinking about and rethinking about these fundamental principles. I think Goldwyn's basic premise was a kind of simple one, which was, you know, there was always a lot of discussion about, well, we need to fix this, we need to fix that in our government or in the Constitution. And Goldwyn's point was, well, before we go tinkering, we better understand fully what, you know, the engine looked like. You know, you may not want to, if you make one change, you have to know how it's going to impact on other things. And also, you may not be describing the problem correctly. And so... I think Goldwyn's view was that before we do harm, we have to have better understanding of the underlying principles and mechanics of, of our constitutional order. And in addition, of course, Walter Burns came to AEI in the early 1980s as well and, and published a series of books as well about the constitution and the larger regime principles. So there was a really remarkable period where AEI was, I think, in terms of the think tanks, perhaps the center for these kinds of studies. Speaking of our late friend, Walter Burns, obviously there's the, the Burns lecture, the annual lecture at AEI in, in his honor, and this book series that we've talked about, and this ought to be the subject of a much bigger podcast conversation. Suffice it to say, this latest book certainly is a worthy contributor to that part of AEI's legacy. Well, thanks. I, I think it is. And I wanted to thank you for helping out and, and not only contributing an essay, but been, being such a great friend of this effort. Thanks. Again, I've enjoyed this a lot. Thanks so much, Nelson, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. And thanks, Gary, for this entire project. You bet. Thanks for helping out and joining. Great. And last of all, as always, thanks to our audience for joining us. Please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential.